This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Hi guys, welcome back to Portable Peds, our pediatric board review podcast. This week we're going to review our high yield facts from our cardiology month. So let's get started with the facts from our dyslipidemia case. So remember the causes of dyslipidemia include genetic and dietary factors in addition to some secondary causes as well. The most important genetic cause to think about is familial hypercholesterolemia, which is due to mutations in the genes that encode the LDL receptors. This then leads to elevated plasma levels of LDL or that bad cholesterol. Patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia are at risk for the development of xanthomas as early as five years of age and coronary artery disease between 10 to 20 years of age. One other genetic cause to keep in mind is familial hypertriglyceridemia, which is an autosomal dominant disorder that is typically not expressed until adulthood. However, obesity can actually accelerate its expression. The most important dietary factors are cholesterol and fat intake, especially saturated fats. There are also some other secondary causes to consider. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus can cause elevated triglycerides. Hypothyroidism and nephrotic syndrome can also lead to elevated levels of LDL and triglycerides. Chronic kidney disease can lead to elevated triglycerides and a low HDL, and certain medications, including OCPs, can lead to elevated triglycerides too. First-line therapy is always going to be an attempt of dietary modifications for at least six months, but if that fails, then there are FDA-approved treatment options for pediatric patients who are at least 10 years old. Specific cutoffs for patients who have attempted dietary modification for at least six months include any patient with an LDL over 190 milligrams per deciliter, any patient with additional risk factors, including obesity, cigarette smoking, or a positive family history of premature cardiovascular disease with an LDL over 160, milligrams per deciliter, and any patient with diabetes and an LDL over 130 milligrams per deciliter. While treatment options for dyslipidemia include bile asteroid sequestrants, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, aka statins, and cholesterol absorption blockers, only these bile acid sequestrants and statins have FDA approval for use in pediatric patients. The adverse effects of bile acid sequestrants are mainly limited to the GI tract, and HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, or these statins, have a risk of myopathy, liver dysfunction, and are teratogenic. The last important fact that we talked about in this case was talking about the results of that Framingham Heart Study, and that identified that obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cigarette smoking, and diabetes are all risk factors for the development of atherosclerosis, so be sure to talk to your patients about these. It is also noted that the maintenance of a low-risk profile from childhood until 50 years of age was associated with a low lifetime risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes. The study estimated that for each 1% increase in cholesterol, there is approximately a 3% increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease. So if you add it up, that actually becomes pretty significant, which is crazy to think about. So now Liz is going to take us through the cyanotic heart diseases and our highest yield facts from that case. 
Well, now that we've learned about preventative medicine from Sammy, let's go ahead and learn about congenital heart disease. So if you remember, there are two major divisions for congenital heart disease. They are cyanotic and acyanotic. In cyanotic disease, the PaO2 will be less than 100 millimeters of mercury. The hyperoxia test can help to differentiate congenital heart disease from other causes of hypoxemia. If the PaO2 is less than 100 millimeters of mercury following 100% FiO2 administration for at least 10 minutes, then you should increase your suspicion for cyanotic congenital heart disease. When thinking about cyanotic heart disease, a simplified way to approach it is to remember the five T's. They are tetralogy of Fallot, transposition of the great vessels, truncus arteriosus, total anomalous pulmonary venous return, and tricuspid valve abnormalities with hypoplastic right heart syndrome. Transposition of the great vessels occurs when the pulmonary and systemic circulations are in parallel due to the aorta arising from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arising from the left ventricle, leading to a deficiency of oxygen supply to the tissues. An ASD, BSD, or PFO is necessary to allow for mixing until the lesion can be repaired. These patients usually present in the first week of life and often within the first 12 hours. A chest x-ray will demonstrate an egg-on-a-string appearance with cardiomegaly. These patients may be temporized with a balloon atrial septostomy, and surgical correction is ultimately necessary to restore systemic and pulmonary circulation in series. Tetralogy of flow is a cardiac condition that has four lesions in one. These lesions are a VSD, an overriding aorta, right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and right ventricular hypertrophy. The degree of right ventricular outflow tract obstruction determines whether or not cyanosis is present. Tetralogy of Fallot presents with a harsh systolic ejection murmur over the pulmonic area due to pulmonary stenosis, and a boot-shaped heart is seen on chest x-ray. If not diagnosed prenatally, then these patients often present with a hypercyanotic episode, also known as a tet spell. These tet spells are associated with agitation and crying because it increases the pulmonary vascular resistance and the heart rate. This in turn leads to a shorter diastole with decreased ventricular filling and increased obstruction of the right ventricular outflow tract, leading to decreased pulmonary blood flow. The way to manage a tet spell is to increase systemic vascular resistance. Ultimately, tetralogy of flow will require surgical repair. Truncus arteriosus is due to a lack of formation of the aortico-pulmonary septum, leading to a common truncal outflow tract and a common truncal valve. Severity depends on the level of pulmonary blood flow and truncal valve insufficiency. These patients typically present within 48 hours with signs of pulmonary overcirculation. The lesion ultimately requires surgical repair within two weeks from birth. An important association is between truncus arteriosus and DeGeorge syndrome. Total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage refers to an abnormal return of the pulmonary veins to the right atrium or the systemic veins. If obstruction is present, then a neonate will exhibit pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary edema within 24 hours from birth. Their chest x-ray will demonstrate a whiteout or a snowman in a snowstorm appearance due to backup of blood into the lung fields. Their exam may also demonstrate a right ventricular heave. If obstruction is present, this is a surgical emergency. However, if no obstruction is present, then patients typically present in the first few weeks of life with failure to thrive and recurrent respiratory infections, which ultimately leads to cardiorespiratory failure by six months of age. Repair is again surgical. Finally, tricuspid atresia is due to an absent tricuspid valve, which leads to a hypoplastic right ventricle and pulmonary artery. These patients require an ASD, a VSD, or a PDA to survive, and they will present with a single S2. Their chest x-ray will be normal or will have a slightly enlarged heart. Now Ryan's going to walk us through acyanotic congenital heart disease. And now to switch over to acyanotic congenital heart disease. An atrial septal defect, or ASD, is due to an abnormal connection between the right and left atria. 
This ultimately leads to a left-to-right shunt with increased diastolic blood volume in the right ventricle and right-sided chamber dilation. ASDs typically present with a murmur at the 4-6 to six month well-child check. The murmur is most commonly described as a fixed split S2 that is loudest at the pulmonic region, with or without a diastolic murmur at the left lower sternal border. ASDs that are less than 5 millimeters typically will close on their own, and otherwise closure is indicated at about 3-4 to four years of age. As opposed to ASDs, ventricular septal defects, or VSDs, are due to an abnormal connection between the ventricles, and their size is described relative to the size of the aortic valve. The murmur in a VSD may not be present at birth, but as the pulmonary vascular resistance falls with age, the typical pansystolic harsh murmur of a VSD becomes apparent. An EKG may demonstrate left or biventricular hypertrophy, again depending on the size of the lesion, and while about 70-80% to 80% will close spontaneously by two years of life, the larger lesions may require surgical or catheter closure. Next, we'll talk about AVSDs, or complete atrioventricular septal defects. This defect is due to abnormalities in proliferation and fusion of the endocardial cushions. An important association to keep in mind is that about 50% of patients with an AVSD will also have trisomy 21, or Down syndrome. In a complete AVSD, there's often not a murmur due to the equalization of pressures. And if a murmur is present, it's typically a diastolic rumble with a systolic ejection or a pansystolic murmur. Surgical intervention typically occurs around four to six months of age. Next is a PDA, or a patent ductus arteriosus. This is the persistence of a normal fetal connection between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. In normal development, this structure typically functionally closes at about 24 hours of life and anatomically closes in about three to four weeks of life. When present, a PDA classically presents as a continuous machine-like murmur over the left precordium. Treatment includes medical management with endomethacin, ibuprofen, or Tylenol versus catheter closure versus surgical ligation. And finally, coarctation of the aorta is due to a discrete narrowing of the aorta. The severity of presentation with coarctation depends on the severity of the narrowing of the aorta. If severe, it may be detected by the critical congenital heart disease screen, or CCHD screen, which is completed on newborns in the newborn nursery. However, a normal CCHD does not rule out a coarctation. If a patient with severe coarctation is not detected on the CCHD, then they may present at around 2-3 to three weeks of age in extremis with a shock-like picture, and that might not be responsive to fluids. It may present with poor feeding, decreased urine output, and a metabolic acidosis. Less extreme cases may be detected at the pediatrician's outpatient clinic in patients who present with diminished femoral pulses or a greater than 20 millimeters of mercury blood pressure gradient between the right upper and lower extremity. Some patients may not present until adolescence when they're identified due to hypertension. Patients will classically have a harsh systolic murmur that's loudest on the back. And one other important feature is that coarctation is associated with Turner syndrome, and about 85% of patients with a coarctation will also have a bicuspid aortic valve. Well, that about wraps up our month on cardiology. Thanks again to Elizabeth Grogan for writing all the cases this month. And tune in next month as we start talking about infectious diseases of the chest. I'm studying. Bye.